Hello and welcome to episode 12.5 of Coppola Connections, the podcast where I'm shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to find out, are they the greatest film family of all time? If you'd listened to last week's episode, you would have heard my conversation with Boyd Hilton talking about Francis Coppola's 1982 romantic drama musical, (laughs) One from the Heart. This week, we're doing something a little bit different and exploring that film's soundtrack because it plays such a vital part to the film itself and needed its own evaluation. So I'm kind of going somewhat off the beaten track with this one and dissecting that a little bit more because it plays such an integral role to the film itself and I didn't want to take up loads and loads of Boyd's time going through that as well. So I've roped in a previous guest. Uh, You would have heard him on the Mandy episode and it's the fantastic David Mills. Before we get into this episode, if you're not already and you're a fan of what we do over here on Caged In, please do be sure to head over to patreon.com forward slash Caged In Pod to support the podcast with a little bit of money. Uh, yeah, yeah, little little monthly, little keep us ticking over. And I can assure you there are some amazing things coming. So I'll be doing some music video breakdowns with some fantastic guests looking at the music videos that the Coppola family have directed whether that is Sofia Coppola, Roman Coppola or even Spike Jones, as well as some commentary episodes which I may do solo I may bring on guests to do stuff like that as well as um a Nicolas Cage hip-hop review show where I'll be looking at every track that has a reference to Nick Cage in it and review it and for that I'm gonna get some amazing uh guests again uh but something a little bit different I'm gonna try and get some some actual people who know what they're talking about when it comes to hip-hop and rap culture so yeah do be sure to check out that when it's up and ready and yeah if you're not signed up to the patreon well once you're signed up to the patreon you'll be able to hear that stuff as soon as it is out there for obvious reasons uh we can't play the full tracks from this soundtrack on the podcast so please do be sure to head on over to spotify or whichever kind of uh music streaming service you use or even youtube and listen to the songs when they are mentioned i've put brief snippets but please do listen to the whole songs if you are so inclined so all that's left to do is to go outside and honk your horn as it's independence day or stay in pour yourself another drink and make some coppola connections the 4th of july celebrations are in full flight and to help me celebrate Francis Ford Coppola's 1982 flop. Last week, obviously, we looked at the film as a whole, but I felt we needed a little bit more. We needed to talk about the soundtrack uh, composed and written by Tom Waits and guest vocals by Crystal Gale. And to help me is a comedian, a cabaret artist, an actor, David Mills. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you? Yes, I'm I'm, I'm very well. And um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm very glad that you're the person having this conversation especially because when i put the call out for somebody to speak to you said well i know the soundtrack 
Yeah. I've never seen the film. So yeah. like I, I yeah. thought that's a it's a wonderful perspective to get on this. So like how did you become aware of of the soundtrack for one? Well, I knew the soundtrack because um you said I'm a cabaret act, and that's true. So I'm always trying to find music to sing. And, um, but you know, I'm not, I mean, my cabaret act is really mostly comedy and then a few songs started in. Um, so I have to, I have to be really, um, really strategic with the songs that I choose. And anyway, I was already a fan of Tom Waits and I also like, well, I love Crystal Gale, although I don't know a lot of her work, the work that I know I really like. And so, um, so in my various Spotify searches for songs, I came across this soundtrack. So I became familiar with the soundtrack through that. And um, I still haven't found a song in it that's right for my cabaret act, but maybe as I get older and my voice gets more gravelly, <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll, you know, I, I, in fact, I haven't sung any Tom Waits on stage, although I, I'm a huge, huge fan of all of it. Well particularly the earlier stuff, the more melodic stuff, when he gets later in his career and gets really abstract, that's that's a bit harder for me. Yeah, it's kind of like the departure in his career is almost the album after this, right? It's kind of, uh, wish, uh, is it Wishbone Trombones, where it's like, then it's kind of going into real, like, um, avant-garde Tom Waits. Here yeah, I like, mean, it's where the real fans exist you know <laughs> i think he's where he really gets his credibility as an artist of course i love the sort of schmaltzy melodic stuff because i'm a sucker for melody mm -hmm. but some of that later stuff that he does really is um deconstructs melody and and it a lot of it is is really atonal and kind of challenging and i just want tom waits on a piano kind of breaking my heart <laughs> well today like i don't know too much about tom waits but like I remember like years ago, just like smoking cigarettes and kind of drinking wine with a friend listening to The Heart of Saturday Night and just being uh, like blown away by that album. Because it's kind of like, there's, there's elements of that that almost sound like Springsteen-esque. Do you know what I mean? Like there's absolutely. Like, there's absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. those two at that time, kind of coming, coming from slightly different angles to like a, a similar sound, whereas like Springsteen kind of had like more of an Americana thing, whereas... Tom Waits kind of has this more like jazz, like there's it, it, something about his music that encapsulates like late nights and stuff like that. And I kind of like... And he's a little bit more of a, a chronicler of the underside of America. Yes. A little bit more than Springsteen. You know what I mean? Springsteen is has hope and Tom Waits doesn't have a lot of hope. <laughs> um, but someone said, I read something in preparation for this, and someone said that um, Tom Waits was the kind of hipster Billy Joel. <laughs> That's perfect. In that, in that era, in that part of his career, before he moved into more of an art sound. Um, and I think that's true, you know. He was, Billy Joel was the kind of mainstream piano man, mm -hmm. and Tom Waits was the more, um, more, artsy hipster you, you sort of had to know about him he wasn't getting radio play yeah. you know yeah well there's they're, they're like well one like tom waits wasn't the first choice to do this soundtrack um so wasn't he francis ford coppola had actually approached van morrison to do to do the soundtrack and uh Thank and, god he didn't do it 
Van Morrison's response was, um, I can't because I don't write my songs. God writes my songs for me. Yeah, of course. And it, it, it wasn't until Francis's uh, son, well, now late son, Gina Carlo, uh, showed him Tom Waits. And I think it's, um, yeah, the specific track, I Never Talk to Strangers with Bette yes. Midler. That really yeah. like you know this much bit I knew this bit I knew that he had seen he had heard that track, and you know that song is really the you can hear that song throughout the soundtrack essentially that mm -hmm. song really captured a lot of what uh, what he does in the soundtrack but that song has that much more of that kind of ironic Bette Midler camp fun to it that Crystal Gale, you know, is just not a Crystal Gale thing. And it's also not exactly what the soundtrack, what, what is right for the movie, you know, that kind of a little bit, a little bit more ironic. Yeah. So, so obviously you'd never seen the film. Like how, like, how do you think now that you, so you have seen the film now? I've seen the film in preparation for this. Yeah. So how do you feel that like, has your perception of the songs, Changed slightly having seen the film, and what were your, what what, what was your initial reaction to seeing the film? Let's uh, let's go with that one first. Um, I, you know, it's the sort of film that I admire for its inventiveness and its ambition, and some stellar moments. Yeah. But as as a whole, I think it just doesn't. Um, doesn't work. Some, somehow there's a missing kind of uh, a, a missing kind of soul to it. You know, it's so contrived and so stagey mm -hmm. that I, I a little bit they, they felt too cardboard. The characters and the situation just felt too cardboard. It didn't I, I didn't warm to either of them. And that's hot. That's challenging particularly with terry gar who is so warm and lovely as you know in her career everything she's ever done you immediately warm to her but somehow this film didn't i don't know because i guess it was it was his his directing style was so contrived so stagey that it looked amazing but it didn't quite grab me yeah and it's it's, it's kind of the fact that like it's all done on a sound stage so like there is yes. that is that level of artifice, like um, Boyd Hilton, on, on when talking about the film, mentioned that, uh, like, it, it even um, uh, uh, Raul Julia's character, like, you don't quite buy him as this, like, sexy, like, kind of mysterious man. He kind of, his character seems a bit creepy from the off. And, like, mm. uh, Frederick Forrest's character doesn't really, like, scream... Well, he doesn't. He's a great actor, but doesn't scream "leading man." And no, not this leading man. Definitely not. I, I didn't. I kind of didn't know what she saw in him. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I didn't get the chemistry there. And I mean, I also love contrivance and I love artifice. So I'm, I'm open to that, absolutely. And I, and there were elements of it that were just stunning and hilarious. And I, I mean, I love a big dance number out of the blue in the middle of a movie. You know, that doesn't make any sense, but you know, if it's a good enough dance number, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't need to make sense. And I thought that, I, di I didn't mind that. In fact, in a way, there could have been more of that stuff. Yes. He could have gone further and that would have, that may have solved the problem. 
But I think there was, I think you make a, a good point that Frederick Forrest and, and, and Terry Gar somehow didn't really no. didn't do it for me. And uh, yeah, the, well, the, the other kind of, I guess, the fourth build in this film would be uh, Natasha Kinski as well, who really is the only person who gets to, gets to sing any of Tom Waits' music in this film. Mm. She kind of does a rendition mm. of uh, Little Boy Blue. Where, uh, mm. And I think I I personally think that yeah this film should have been an out and out musical. It's kind of like it's only from doing like the research you you gain understanding of what Francis Ford Coppola wanted to do in regards to he'd been inspired by Kabuki Theatre and how that like if a certain element of that if like the lighting or you kind of need to do something with like shadow puppets like yeah let that takes center stage if the music needs to tell the story let that take center stage whereas yeah. like i guess like an element where this like slightly falls down is like and that's why it kind of it works great isolate is like because you've got tom waits with this kind of like moody raspy singing like some it takes a few times to kind of pick up on what's actually being said and when that is like supposed to be to tell like the story or i think tom, mm. tom Waits said himself like he saw him and crystal gale as zeus and hera like parting the clouds and like being the greek chorus right. to look right. down on this story and yes when you look at a lot of the lyrics on this album like some of them are very like on the nose in regards to like what is go like do you know what I mean like what what what's going on between the characters or yeah like, yeah i think it's like e even like i think it's one of the later tracks on the album there's a line and I'll, I'll 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 pull it up when we come to talk about the track but something to the effect of she's gonna run away with a, a like a mysterious man to mm. a foreign land or something like that and it's like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah we, we get it like that, that's been yeah. told in the film already and then like yeah. it yeah. kind of it, it doesn't have the it doesn't do the job that it's supposed to do of kind of taking center stage in the music telling us like well the story's yeah. already told us um, i mean i think you know you know as i said before he could have gone further mm -hmm. And that I think is well in the casting, like in a way, Terry Gar and Frederick Forrest were a little bit too plain. Mm -hmm. Like had they been fucking gorgeous and kind of almost, almost, you know, like cartoon, not cartoon gorgeous, you know? Yeah. Then I think that may, then it would, all that contrivance may have made sense. And I think this also is a little bit of the challenge in the soundtrack, because there's this mix of gravel, Tom Waits, realism, and then the the like incredibly the incredible precision and clarity of Crystal Gale. I mean, I think upon a few listens, you can really get into it to that contrast, mm -hmm. but it takes a moment. It takes a moment for those two to sit well together. And I love them both. And I've grown to really love this soundtrack. Mm -hmm. But it took me time, you know? I, I think one of the things that, like, the, the soundtrack is giving with those two, like, opposing voices, as you said, you've got the rasp and you've got the very, like, crispness of Chris, Crystal Gale's mm. voice, is that it, it's almost like saying to the audience, like, 
these things don't go together. So like, like when you get to the end of the film and they like stay, they, they get back together. It's like, it doesn't make sense. Like that is, that is probably the biggest flaw of this film is like, um, Hank's abhorrent behavior is kind of rewarded in the end because he gets the yeah. woman back. Whereas I guess like a film that, like the director hasn't said but like i think i think has been inspired by one from the heart is la la land and like how that kind of how that plays out in that like these two dreamers living in a city do you know what i mean like and then they eventually don't end up together because like they have mm-hmm. their they have their dreams and i think that's more of a a real world and more of a satisfying story and especially like right. yeah with, with with this story the things that uh Frederick Forrest's character Hank does. It's like he doesn't does he doesn't deserve Terry Gard. She's too no. lovely. She's too. I, lovely. I totally agree. Oh, or, or Natasha Kinski for that matter. Yeah, but, yeah, 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 yeah. He, he, he but, you know, it, yeah. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I had a hard time buying that. But you know, again, because had it been another actor, because it was so gorgeous to look at, I would have gone with it. Mm-hmm. But because he was so plain and. I don't know. It, it it just felt it just was unsettling somehow. So let's yeah. Let uh, what we're going to do in this episode is go track by track, just have a a, a brief discussion about the songs and kind of how they fit with the film, how they work as their own entity. So the first track we have is opening montage. Uh, it's a long title. This one, Tom's piano intro. Once upon a town, the wages of love. What are your thoughts on on this kind of opening opening track? I mean, it's a, it's sort of like the Tom Waits that I love, mm-hmm. you know, the Tom Waits I expect that really kind of down at heel, um, forlorn, piano in the corner, empty bar, you know, troubadour. And I love right at the beginning that that you know there's a, a some sort of coin a heavy coin, almost so it would be like a pound coin or, or at least a quarter in the US, drops mm-hmm. and you hear it spin, you know? And it's a really great, it's just such a, a great sound and a great kind of image in my mind. And, um, and, and, and very Tom Waits to me, very cinematic. I mean, that's the thing about this, again, Tom Waits, he, I always, Think of him in a bar room, like I said, in a dusty old bar, kind of empty bar. But then this, a lot of this stuff then gets, becomes really sweeping and really kind of orchestral as well. And I think this song, these opening songs do that quite well, mixing those two kind of styles together. Yeah, because, um, yeah, he worked with um, Bob Alcavar, the, like the arranger and composer on like the string arrangements of that. And there's some brilliant footage um, that's on like uh, a very specific like Miramax DVD release of the film. Like it's it's one of those films that's like very hard to 
pick up. It's all sure. like secondhand DVDs or the if if it, most of the DVDs that are on sale are just like the kind of bare bones, nothing yeah. on them, just the film. And um, yeah, there's this footage of him like Tom Waits standing there next to next to the uh, conductor, kind of like just like moving. He says to at one point, "It's like oh man, it's like dancing." Like and he's like he, the, the the conductor's taking like cues from him and the the, the orchestra like, the the orchestral stuff on this is like and just that kind of like that beautiful like pia- like plonky piano at the beginning and like as you said with the like coin I think in the film it's it's matched with the thing of like um a like a ball being dropped on a roulette table isn't it I think like mm. I think it's like coupled with that and like you just get like this. I know it yeah it, either way like on the album it kind of it, it sound like a coin or like do you know what I mean like whatever it's like, it's it's very like evocative and um so like li- again this is the this is the what where I think it, it a little bit breaks down because to me Tom Waits is it not in a crowded Vegas the, the Vegas they show is full of crowds and showbiz yeah. and lights and all this he's in he's off the strip in some empty room with a few drunks, you know, singing, crying into his beer, you know, this, I would, you know, if you see something like American Hustle or one of these films and, or, or, or the, the Ocean's Eleven's films, that's the sound is much more kind of showbiz razzmatazz, Mm -hmm. you know, and even, even some of these, like particularly the next one, if, if we're ready to move on to the next song. Yeah. So the next song on uh, the soundtrack is, is there any way out of this dream? Nothing is clear. I keep falling apart every year. Now, remind me, that's that's the two of them together, is it? Yes. No, that's just Crystal Gale. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's the one after that. But I just think that in some of these duets, what what is needed is more of a like an Andy Williams voice, mm-hmm. clear, clean, you know, controlled, showbiz. Even if it's even if he's singing sort of sadly, mm-hmm. it's it's you know I I wonder how that would sound. Yeah. You know, I'm also a huge fan of Andy Williams, so I love that sound. But I think I just wonder if that feels more Vegas than the movie Vegas more than 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 what the the what weights brings which is a really kind of sad place and not this showbiz place like the Vegas in the movie well even on even on that crystal gale track uh, is there any way out of this dream it kind of like it's quite a dour note because it's but it's almost like terry gar's character's like introductory song and yes. like the the lyrics to this song is I feel so incomplete. Is there any way out of this dream? And like, yes. there's lines like, summer is dragging its feet and stuff like that. And it it, uh, it sounds like, like very much like she's in a bad, bad place. Like, and like, and I think it's like, it comes more on the fore, like how, te- like te- you get this idea from the off that their, their relationship is terrible. And you saying about the, uh, 
the next track, Picking Up After You, which has got, like, some some brilliant lines in it. Just this this great, like... It, wor- it works great as, like, that, that back and forth between them, where it's like, um... Uh, what, what's on the lines? Yeah, yeah, like... Uh, Tom Waits delivers the line, like, combing your hair with a wrench, like... And it's that kind of, like... That... He, he beautifully captured that, like... Um, Mun like that that yeah that like i don't know mundane anger you f- like could like not anger but do you know what i mean like kind of like frustration frustration in like a lot like, like a lot of people deal with in like uh long-term relationships i know like there's that thing like w- when a when a relationship's on the on a fritz all those things that you thought were cute like they they might yes like, br- like Driving the way they, crazy. yeah the way yeah. they breathe the way they eat like all of a sudden that's the things that kind of really like get to the core of you and like i fucking hate this person and yeah you get yeah. Like, um terry gar i think she his line like smells like a poor hole where's my other shoe i'm sick and tired of picking up after you and like it like yeah it's it's a great like it's, it's um it's, it's a great kind of depiction of a, of a relationship in turmoil i mean what's so so great is that wait I think successfully writes from a woman's point of view really well. Whereas someone like Bruce Springsteen, or I don't know if you know John Mellencamp or these sort of American troubadours, they rarely write from a woman's point of view Mm -hmm. successfully. And in this, throughout this, uh, Waits does it really well. Well, What is like very interesting about this is um, Francis Ford Coppola wanted the songs pretty much finished before the film was even like being shot really yeah he gave tom waits like a little studio space within zoetrope studios to kind of sit and write and uh he even like brought him to napa and they kind of had like discussions and francis ford coppola would be like in on some of the writing sessions and discuss it and um it's on like so a, a, a script supervisor on uh, at, at Zoetrope Studios was um, uh, da, 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 oh, her name. Da, 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 uh, well, is is now yeah is um, Tom Waits is now wife. Like he met his wife no. whilst whilst like kind of working out the. So I guess like there's despite this film being like a commercial failure and like a kind of critical flop at least like we've got this like beautiful nugget that it's like i don't believe they're still together it's listed online that yeah like amazing well but i think you know (laughs) critical flop but i think you know has grown i think is is appreciated by film buffs Mm -hmm. yes maybe it's flawed but there's so it's so rich there's so much in it. I, and I very much like it despite its flaws. Like and I Yeah, yeah. I I I agree. I agree. But um there was something else we were gonna oh, I think this picking up after you is particularly something that um you could hear Bette Midler and Tom Waits doing really well. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, she I think would bring more of a a uh, kind of a, a little more salt to it than our friend Crystal Gale, who I who I love, of course, and <laughs> who brought her beautiful clarity. But 
um, I think I think Bet would make bring it alive in a, in a different way. Well, uh, yeah. Moving on to the next track, "Old Boyfriend." That uh, very much sounds like it could be like a a Barbara Streisand song or something like that. I mean, I think Crystal Gale knocks that right out of the park. It's yeah. so, so beautiful, so beautiful. And I love, you know, hidden in the pockets of your overcoat. And I mean, it's just so gorgeous, so gorgeous. And and I think it really is different than if you would were saying old girlfriends. I think it would be a very different song. Mm -hmm. And I just think... I, I just think Tom Waits really captures that feeling. You know, listen, I don't want to speak for women, but as you know, someone who has boyfriends, it re I could really relate to it, you know? And I, I, I just wonder if it works the same way, if it were old, if you could use the lyrics and say old girlfriends, and, and if it would work, I just don't know. No, I, 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 don't, I don't, I don't think so. Like it's, it's, yeah, like it's got a real like beautiful melancholy to, to mm. It's like kind of like um the way it kind of like creeped. And I can't really I can't like I'm trying to picture back to where it appears in in the film cuz that, that is a thing. Sometimes the music does get a bit lost in the film at times like Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and I don't think they play all the songs all the way through as well. No, 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 no. Um so yeah, let's move on to Broken Bicycle. Broken Bicycles Old Busted Chains What are your thoughts on I mean, this to me feels like it could be like on an, on an old Tom Waits album. In fact, this one and the next one to me feel like old style Tom Waits makes sense off the album, away from the movie in, in, in one of his older albums, you know, like it could, it, you, you wonder how many of these were songs that he had the skeleton of already. Yeah. You know, that then he brought to the film. I was listening to on the DVD. There's like a, a menu where it's got like some of the demos for some of the tracks and stuff like that. And one of them in particular that I really enjoyed. Uh, well, it's a its working title was uh, uh, Chisel. Yeah, uh, Chisel. Yeah, like uh, like a chisel. So we'll 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 get onto the song. Like, uh, but yeah, it's um it's kind of just hearing them hearing him work them out and stuff like that and these, mm. these beautiful turns of phrase that he like um he manages to like pick up and there's i think what this soundtrack does really well in like the tom waits music is he kind of draws upon like nursery rhymes and like imagery and of like do you know what i mean like almost like fairy tale imagery at times and kind of 
gives the film like a fairy tale like quality almost yes yes but i i feel like the 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 fairy tale is not like your conventional fairy tale it's more like a kind of depression era (laughs) you know hobo traveler you know i don't want to say circus but you know almost like a rom- someone who's like a romantic sort of, I don't know, wanderer from that era through the depression and all this, you know? And um, it's funny because it's set in the 80s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has a kind of, <laughs> this music all feels like it's from another era. Yeah. And, okay. and, and I think the poetry that he brings to it also feels, has a kind of earlier feel to it. So let's talk about track six on this album, which is I Beg Your Pardon. I'm just a scarecrow without you. Baby, please don't disappear. I beg your pardon, dear. Um, I, I personally like this. Just that, that opening line, um, I'm just a scarecrow without you. Please, baby. Yeah. Please, yeah, baby, please don't disappear. I beg your pardon, dear. I think, like, it's the best, like, kind of, it's the song for me in this whole soundtrack that encapsulates Hank, like, really well. Like, that kind of, like, he's a, he's a, like, he's an idiot, like, and he's kind of, like, I don't know, like, he'll say these grand gestures, like, the, I'm a scarecrow without you, but like at the same time, he's not quite lit like that. The, 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 my kind of reading of that, I beg your pardon, dear, is like, I'll say these grand gestures, but I didn't listen to a word you said. Yeah. 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 But I also think he, it, it's when he really shows his own self-awareness of how limited he is, you know, and you know, comes comes clean on that a bit in, in the best way he can, which isn't even seeing all his limitations, you know, but it's the best he can do. And then I also thought is really interesting is that's the one that, you know, where there's, is this right? Let me see what I wrote down here. Um, there's lovely, there's lovely horns at the end of it as well. Yeah. And it gets a little bit, they, they, they're sort of soft and gorgeous. And then it kind of sparks the horns and they get a little angry and then they, they, they quiet down again. And I, in that moment, I thought, okay, this is where Tom Waits goes in his career later mm-hmm. with that kind of angry brass and more discordant kind of sound. And then in fact, the next few songs have a, a even more of that. Yes. But you can sort of see it creeping in. That feels like a perfect segue to talk about the next song on the soundtrack, which is Little Boy Blue. Before noon, she used to render you legal intent. 
obviously we discussed this one as I said it's the the only one that kind of gets the musical treatment in the film Mm. I'd like to get your thoughts on on the soundtrack version and uh, Natasha Natasha Kinski's uh, rendition within the film I'm gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna disappoint you because I can really only speak to the the soundtrack version because I can't, I I, I didn't, you know, I, I watched it a few weeks ago and I didn't watch closely enough with the with um, Natasha's version, but the what I love about the the soundtrack version is the organ, and you know Tom Waits does a lot of this in his career, yeah. you know it really it's really so evocative of a of a, a time and an era and a, a a kind of a distant melancholy, but also a, 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 like a like a almost like a like a clown, like a sat like a, a clown that's kind of dancing, but to try and be happy, but is but it but it's it's sort of a a, a kind of futile exercise. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, like that, that organ kind of gets me in that. The, the, this specific organ kind of puts me in that that mind. Um, it's got that like wandering bass as well that kind of like boom 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 like, yeah and, and very much screams to like yeah like his next album kind of like do you know what I mean like a lot of like double bass going all over the place and stuff like and, that and, and also like weird um weird couplets I love when he says um she used to render you legal and tender yeah but, uh, hard to know what that means but but also feels like it, it's so specific it means something to him you know yeah I, the way i kind of read that is like you used to be useful do you know what i mean it's like you used mm. to be useful in the way that like yes that must be right yes in that like yeah like i used to be i used to be able to cash in these chips but now now like you, like, like as if you've like found like an old 10 pound note that's like out of circulation or something and you go yes. to spend it and they're like I can't use that anymore and it's yes like, yes that's right and 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 this is the song that we get um yeah like we get well just line taken from a nursery rhyme which is uh like the opening line is little boy blue come blow your horn the dish ran away with the spoon and like again i think that's like it's got this like childlike quality to it that very much evokes the characters because very very much their kind of wants and needs in the films are very like like teenagers do you know yes, what I mean? like that that, right. that is that like all they all she wants to do is kind of like run off to like a, an exotic land and he just yeah he basically just wants to get his leg over with someone exotic they they both yeah they both kind of want the same thing just in in different ways basically yeah exactly and i think they both have unrealistic expectations of what a relationship is supposed to be mm-hmm. you know it's like they really enjoy the first six months and then after that they're like this is not what i bargained for yeah you know? um i love where he says everything's canada dry <laughs> i thought that was a great you know uh reference and and sort of a, such a funny way to say like everything is you know i think everything is is good yeah, yeah. Canada dry, right everything's yeah, yeah. Great. A, a bit of sparkle yeah. to it right is there if, I, if yeah. i'm right is canada dry uh what like ginger ale is that it's a ginger it? ale yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I remember rightly from my from my time in Canada. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about um, well, the next one is an instrumental track just called Instrumental Montage, The Tango Circus Girl. 
But this is where, this is, you know, to say it again, this is really where we see what's coming for Tom Waits mm -hmm. because it really gets, it, it gets quite crazy, you know? Although it has that tango underpinnings, I mean, that's just where he starts and it really, you know, goes into sort of all sorts of weird directions. Is this the music that underscores, uh, well, two seconds. I'm just gonna... I think it underscores their dancing, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I confused myself here. Just got a... Yes. Yes, it very much does. You might have heard that in the background, guys. That was me playing the song. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we get that beautiful, like, I, I, the, the thing is with this, I was like, I wish this was an out and out musical and we got more dance yeah. numbers and we got, like, people who are competent enough to sing those, like, even if the songs were written by um, Tom Waits, at least we would have got like two great albums. We would have got like a cast soundtrack, yeah. and then we would have got like amazing the Tom Waits album as well. Yeah, like, but yeah. yeah I, I think I think um, that scene in the film with um, that dance number, like even the way that it's kind of shot, like it's very like you get that like very dingy, dark like. I don't know what it is like a concert room that Ralph yes. Julia and Terry Gar dancing in, and then they kind of burst out of the onto the onto the strip, and it's great. And then you get um, uh, Hank and Natasha Kinski's character, yeah. and it's the later part of this. I think it's it's their scene, right, where they're in the in the junkyard, and then they go to the junkyard, yeah. And he's conducting while she's doing her her like acrobatics yeah. and stuff like that. And there's like, yeah, there's again, there's great footage on this uh, little little tiny like eleven minute documentary of Tom Waits saying like for that junkyard scene, he he wanted to just utilize stuff in there to create music, and he's it, like. I've always thought, man, it'd be it'd be really good to hear a hundred and sixty-four car door slam at once. And like that, like so you kind of get a glimpse into his mind of like that's what and you kind of get these sounds of like I don't yeah, like tin being hit and stuff like that. And it's I mean, but this is absolutely where he went in his career. Everything yeah, yeah. sounds like it's recorded in a junkyard, you know. <laughs> and um you know, just on on whatever he can find, pots and pans and weird old you know sheets of metal and and who knows what uh and I, you know it's it's really great but also really um really weird as particular and, and quite discordant when you've got like a big musical number yeah and then you get this kind of you know uh industrial sound of the junkyard you know or scrapyard where, where they where they go um and i have to say I was so thrilled when the their dancing started, you know, just the two of them, and then it burst into a big number in the street with, you know, a you know a big cast. I mean, yeah. super unexpected. I I didn't see that coming at all, and I I really it really thrilled me. And I wonder if it were a musical from the start, you would lose that unexpected thrill, mm -hmm. you know. So it would be you would be losing one thing, and maybe gaining a lot more. But there was something really exciting about when that happened. Or even if the film, like from then on out, like really lent into being a musical. Yeah. What, 
yeah. What what that middle scene unfortunately does is kind of like hits you to a really big high. Then it's like kind of like a a slow. Never come. goes back. It never quite then follows through, does it? It's a slow come down from there. But like, like soundtrack wise, I think like my personal favorite song on the soundtrack. Is coming up, and we'll, 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 it, it might be a bit hack when you find out what it is. But uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the next one uh, before we get to it. Uh, let's talk about you can't unring a bell. I, I think he is, I think he's, the way he sings it, I cannot remember it in the film, how it fits into the film, but this is the kind of scary Tom Waits, which emerges later in his career, the, the beginnings of it. He almost sounds feral, I think. It sounds like a, um, you know, almost like a, 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 a small time mafia boss, you know, it, it's really, really really threatening I, this song felt to me and the way he sings it and the way he uses his breath is really um yeah it, it really i i think it's it's quite quite scary yeah yeah, yeah. so um and, and brilliant brilliant <laughs> but like, you know just quite very different from the rest and right at the end he gets really he just sort of growls you know yeah which it was like i love it but <laughs> you know okay here we go now he's growling but you know what next <laughs> yeah yeah so some of it, it, it well like even so yeah even like some of the i don't know some of the lines in the song do you know what i mean it's like and it's i, I guess it kind of speaks to hank again because it's like a line it's like how do you feel like it in the slam you're a little man in a great big town perhaps you're a little hasty and then, like the lyrics readers, <laughs> and like you go, it kind of has that menace that, like, yeah, lights can perfectly convey. Yeah. Uh, well, we we now get to the, I guess, what would be the 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 hit right of this of of this soundtrack, which is the the somewhat title track. Uh, this one's from the heart. This for me, David, is quickly become not not just like my favourite on this album. I think this is like one of my go-to songs to listen to. I think this is like I love this. I think it's beautiful. Like, I mean, this is the reason Tom Tom Waits and Crystal Gale, you know, should work together. You know, this is the this is where they bring both of their strengths together in the perfect combination. It, they really are complementary and still their own doing their own thing. You know, it, it's just so classically beautiful and heartbreaking. It's beautiful. It's got, it's, I think this has got like some of 
well, some of the best lines and some of the best like music and like lyrics working together. Like there's something about the um the combination of uh yeah the line I can't tell is that a siren or a saxophone, and then we get a kind of like saxophone swell that sounds like a siren and it just sends shivers up my spine every time it's like and like like crystal gales delivery and just that like that refrain that they keep coming back to that oh baby this one's from the heart i just think like it's such like a it's it's a perfect it's a perfect duet song and i think i think it is yeah. like just this this like uh, yeah, I I find myself singing like uh, along to this one all the time, like in the in the shower and stuff like that. And, I mean, she is so I think such a she's so amazing, and yet there's a real limitation she has because her her stuff is so much about precision and polish and perfection that it only works in certain in a certain context. And he had to really, I think. I mean, the lyrics and, and his performance in this create kind of a bed that allows her, her precision to sit perfectly. Whereas in other ones, maybe that, that is a little less, um, they're less suited to each other, but, but this song really allows her to, to be the stunning, beautiful little angel that she is and allows him to be that kind of forlorn, you know, troubadour, traveler, mm -hmm. seen yeah. it all kind of person that he is. Well, there's just like, like, I think it's an encapsulation of like a, that last ditch attempt to kind of like win someone over. I think this song mm, like has yeah. lines that capture that so so beautifully. And I think like the kind of like the the crystalline like kind of fragility of Crystal Gale's voice mm. and that kind of like that rasp. But like I don't it it it, it, re it really speaks to me. I, f I feel like it kind of like this film like not 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 in a way that like I relate to Hank and like I would do the things he does, but like I've 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 been like probably a shit boyfriend, not to any degree that Hank is, but do you know what I mean? Like I've and I've probably like I I I think like especially like coupled with this song, like I I think there's like grand statements I can make like in the lyrics, it's like uh, kind of like one of the final verses that Tom Waits gives, like blonde brunettes and redheads put the hammer down to pound a chisel to my heart like and it's like but they were all apostrophes and it's like just that kind of, that that perfectly like beautifully captures that kind of like yeah having this like last ditch attempt to be like they, they were all nothing you're you're the one and just to yeah, i think i think the the emotive like uh evocative way that that, that line especially um they were nothing but apostrophes just great like, right it's great poetry yeah it's it's yeah it's beautiful like yeah. I, I i have yeah i absolutely love it and kind of even crystal gale like um yeah she gets some lines that are like they they both perfectly kind of i think this song like in a way is like a, pr a brilliant like sales pitch for the film yeah i agree but it also shows perfectly why they're not right for each other yes you know 
it it works, but you can you can almost tell that this is the moment it works and it doesn't work at all outside of this context. It's like so many moments you have maybe with a boyfriend or a girlfriend where you have this amazing experience, whether it's a week or a month or yeah. a weekend, but really outside of the context of that moment, there's no way, it, there's no reason for it to work. It would never work, but it, but it absolutely works in that song and in that moment. Well, I think what this song captures is the, like you're saying, like the kind of disparate natures of both the characters, whereas like, um, even from the opening line, it's like, I should go out and honk my horn. It's Independence Day. Instead, I just pour another drink. I pour myself another drink. And it's like, that just like, again, like captures that thing of Hank's unwillingness to kind of like, yeah, even go on in the relationship. Whereas like, uh, uh, what is Terry? Yeah, Terry Gar's character is very much like wants to like, go out and experience it and right. like yeah it's just like again well you would have heard a snippet of it on this episode guys but if you haven't listened to uh this one's from the heart it's an absolute uh beautiful song uh so yeah i guess we should talk about like the the the, the final few songs on, on this uh the next one is take me home This is another moment for Crystal Gale to just shine and bring her stunning voice to the fore. And she's saying, you know, I read somewhere that said this was some of the best work of her career. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know her entire career, but it's the, what I know, this stuff is at the top. She, she sings this so beautifully, so sublimely. And it's such a short, concise, beautiful song, and um, and she hits it out of the ballpark. It's it's stunning. Yeah, it's just that like that the kind of I don't know like almost um, lullaby nature to it as well. Just the kind of the delivery of like take like take me home, you silly boy. It's just kind of got this like soothing quality to it like it's it's a song that hank doesn't deserve because he's like he sh she shouldn't like <laughs> jerry Garth's yeah. character should not be saying take me home yeah he's a piece of shit but like yeah crystal girl absolutely like but i forget does she sing it to hank or does she sing it to raul julia no she sings it to hank yeah i think it's yeah. at the yeah 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 I, th I think like it's at the point where like he's shut like done his grand gesture at the at the oh right uh, at the airport and all that airport yeah yeah i believe yeah. so yeah 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 i might have put up uh, if i'm getting this wrong i do apologize guys i should be the i should have rewatched the film <laughs> no i think that but that would make sense with the lyrics as well yeah, yeah you know yeah. i still love you and all that and i think also you know she um 
her control of her voice is so so masterful that she's able to deliver this with a light touch. You know what I mean? Whereas any other singer, because it's almost virgin on sickening, sickeningly sweet, you know, mm-hmm. any other singer could, you know, it's like you say, it's got that kind of um, lullaby quality and any, any other singer would overdo that or get too emotional and schmaltzy with it but she's able to deliver it so precisely and perfectly. It just, it, it you know, I just can't think of anyone else who could do it like she does <laughs> as successfully as she does. Yeah. And then, and then next up on the, on the uh, soundtrack, well, not, it's a 45, it's a, it's a minute long song that it's just like an instrument and a, a lovely piece of instrumental music called Presence. again like gives us some great just kind of i think this tom waits is like piano work yeah gorgeous yeah absolutely gorgeous yeah yeah. and then because the next one as well sort of starts with piano as well and and to me it kind of felt like a a little a a little appetizer for for what was what's coming next which is candy apple red You know, at at this point now, I'm feeling a little bit like, all right, Tom, <laughs> you know, I've heard it. You know, th- th- this feels like beginning to get repetitive mm-hmm. to me. And I don't know if I needed this song. It hasn't, I've, I've not warmed to this song. It, it feels again like this is some, she, he's, he's already done this once or twice. So this one doesn't doesn't do it for me what do you say yeah and i didn't know i didn't know what this meant candy apple red i didn't i didn't know what the song was about um oopsie. well yeah it kind of oh sorry my screen has just gone blank sorry two seconds david yeah you seem sort of i don't know where you've gone i don't know either i can Oh, okay. I can see. Well, you're back. I'm back in the room. Uh, you're back in the room. So with this one, I yeah, I very much feel the same as you. Like it's kind of like this. This very much is like a, a, a couple of tracks, like too long. Do you know what I mean? Like it's. Do you remember what it was in the film? Do you remember this in the film? I I think this might come before just because the the lyrical content of this is I don't care if she never comes back. It's in Candy Apple Red. I'll never love again. That's for sure. Very much sounds like like that that, that idea of like, yeah, Hank giving up. I I think it might be very like 
Maybe it was after the airport when he's gone home, but yes. before she returns back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get to the um, yeah the final track, which is "Once Upon a Town, Empty Pockets." Amazing. I mean, also, they "Once Upon a Town" was an early uh, phrase, early lyric in the, in the first song, and I love that idea and that phrase "Once Upon a Town." To me, that is so um, evocative of, of, you know, in a way, sort of my life because I've lived in many, many cities—not many, many—but I've lived in like five different cities, and so I I think of certain relationships associated with that city. So I, I love that idea of once upon a town. And that again, gets back to his, his uh, or, or my feeling about Waits as this kind of traveling troubadour, right? Yeah. Um, and then Empty Pockets as well, reminds me a little bit about old boyfriends and the way she talked about old boyfriends getting lost in the pockets of your overcoat. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's got it, it sort of harkens back to some some of the themes from the early part of the the film and the early part of the the soundtrack. And then it's of course extremely beautifully done and the, and lyrically beautiful and the two of them are great and I I think it's the perfect song. Yeah, it's got like just the way it kind of starts off with that kind of like um like saxophone like, and it's like just his delivery of that opening line, like, I wish I had a dollar for every, like, yeah, for each time I took a chance. And it's like, it's, I don't know, like, it's a beautiful, like, cap to, to like, the end yeah. of it. And, yeah, I think I think the, t- the, the title, and, yeah, very much that, like, Once Upon a Town, it, it kind of does then bring us back into that thing of, like, this is a fairy town kind of, like, I guess it plays like as yes. as we get that kind of panning shot away from the house and we kind of see Vegas one last time. And but it's like, it's such an interesting look on Vegas as well, isn't yeah. it? It's from the outskirts of Vegas. It's not yeah, so yeah, much yeah. of the you know well, and yeah, just this interesting street that has this kind of like two-story house that they live in next to like a trailer park. Do you know what I mean? Next to like a trailer and like... It's just I mean, like, it's really <laughs> where their relationship makes sense. Uh-huh. Put it in Vegas and somehow it all doesn't make sense. And her kind of, her, you know, fantasy of of that Vegas lifestyle, you know, what she's sort of looking for, he doesn't really fit in that world and they together don't fit in that world. But bring them back on the outskirts it makes a bit more sense. Yeah, I, I, I think like what like I don't know because I, I I do have a problem with like them getting back together in this film. Mm, like, mm. I I do think like I don't know like the music is very like it's kind of hopeful and hopeless at the same time. Like 
but I, I think, think well go ahead no, I was just gonna say like it kind of like gives you that impression that like they're okay for now but the next bump in the road exactly split up like exactly this is exactly what i thought or it's going to be a long term make up and break up and make up and break up and make up and break up this is what they're in for this is what this is what their relationship is you know and those relationships exist and they yeah. can go on for years and years and years and years can't they yeah. um so maybe that's what we're seeing you know and that would make a lot of sense because there is that crazy tension in their relationship. Sometimes they absolutely fit together, but there's some things that are just so inherent in both of them that draws them apart. And this is also what we hear in the music and their voices, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, in many ways, it's so brilliant. It is so brilliant. And I, I, I wonder if anyone listening to this podcast, if they, if, if they don't know the movie, if they're going to have, sat through all as far as we've gone because i mean <laughs> because it kind of doesn't make any sense what we're talking about unless you kind of know it you know or have seen it but the, i i think at the same time it is it is interesting that like it works as just like a body of music away from like because they work as these kind of like beautiful songs and i think like it's, as i said like at the beginning i think sometimes they like coupled with the imagery in the film they kind of it all gets a bit too much it gets a bit like yeah. mm, a bit like on the nose too much where you're like yeah. they're yeah. basically like singing like what the what the character is yeah it very much already feels, seen it. yeah and it very much feels like it wants to be a musical but like he's scared to be a musical and like, yeah something like that yeah but like i, I in the next breath i'm very like um like happy with the film like kind of like find it it's a, tr a a triumph in a way that francis ford coppola tried something new do you know what i mean he yeah. kind of like tried to couple this idea of like doing something that is almost like because his initial plans to make the film was to film it live basically like just get the cast to the point and like just have it so they would film 10 minutes because i think that at the time on film that was like the limit you could film in one go like because of the, the film stock itself so he was like each day we'll just do 10 minutes of the film and like had it had it set up that they could have like uh multiple cameras and almost shoot sure. it, like and sets yeah. kind of coming in and out and all this yeah and you kind of get that with you know like the transitions like none of that's yes. done through editing it is kind of like like changing of lighting and like just kind of yeah, like the, the walls it's like theater like, you know yeah. it's real theater yeah so. that's what it's yeah it's it's like and i think like it, it will probably never happen maybe it will happen in like a black box theater or something like that but like like i, I think a, a stage adaptation of this kind of one that could kind of like iron out some of the like characters i think it's such a great idea story yeah. kinks in it yeah. and stuff like that especially yeah. coupled with the Tom Waits music would be absolutely beautiful. I think it makes absolute sense. You know, someone said in the, uh, I was reading about the film that this was really the uh, prototype for um, Moulin Rouge. Yeah. And you know that this is actually as flawed as, as it is so much better and so much richer than, than Moulin Rouge. 
uh, obviously because it, the songs were written for it as opposed to sort of pop songs that they pulled from, you know, the charts. And, um, and I thought that was a really smart uh, insight, you know, that you can see that Moulin Rouge really drew on some of the innovations and, and you know, was inspired by, in, in a way, by what Francis Ford Coppola did. And, you know, how exciting that he was as experimental as he was mm-hmm. at that moment in his career when he had the resources to experiment in a big way as well. Which you honestly, know? like, um, was was a big gamble. Well, like, it didn't pay off either because he lost he lost Zoetrope Studios. It personally bankrupted him. Like, yeah. and you like a lot of people argue that like he's never really he never really recovered from yeah. from the kind of failure of uh, yeah one from the heart. But I think that's what makes it wholly more interesting i know people talk about like the five years in the jungle he spent making apocalypse now or like like i know that we're getting like a tv series all about the making of the godfather but i think like for me and it's one of the reasons like i'm kind of covering this film quite early on in the like coppola filmography it's just that thing that like i think it's one that kind of even if it's just like a curio for people, like I'm not saying it's the, the his best film, but it's very much like a film that like deserves watching and like a, a light definitely night needs to be shone on both the film and the soundtrack. And that's that's why I wanted to do this episode of yourself to kind of like go through the soundtrack and hopefully um I don't know, like Get some more get some more sales on eBay. I don't know. Like, yeah, if you can track down this film, <laughs> get, a, get a get a new uh, uh, focus on it. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I I'm a, I totally agree with you. I think it's a really worthwhile film. It was a worthwhile undertaking for on his part, and it was an artistic experiment. You know, and and in in the world of filmmaking and musicals as well, because they're so expensive, there's so little opportunity to really experiment with form and uh, style in the way that he did. And I think it's, you've got to praise these films, whether they're successful or not, because how, you know, how, how does the industry move forward? How does the art form move forward? Exactly. If we're all just making films that are, com- you know, for some sort of commercial success as opposed to artistic success. Oh yeah, you need that person to go over the top, don't you? You need to, you need that person to poke their head above the parapet and kind of like go out there, fail miserably, but then people can learn from it. And I think one, like one of the big takeaways we can get from one from the heart, if anything, is the kind of like relationship then forward of uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Tom Waits, because he then like pops up in a few of his films, whether it's like. Believe he might pop up in the Outsiders, but he definitely pops up in like Rumblefish. He's kind of like, he's, is he? He's got a cameo like in a bar and stuff like that. And then he? Right. obviously, from then on, kind of like has become an actor in his own right and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I, I, don't know. I mean, also, I think that, um, you know, you've got to look at the influence of Francis Ford Coppola on Sophia Coppola, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, not to take away her own, uh, brilliance but you know she's someone who also experiments and also fails you know and succeeds both but you know she certainly had some 
experimental failures. Yeah, they're, 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 I think they're an interesting family that kind of very much push like to to just do creative things and like it's one of those things like I, I think the the main criticism that gets leveled to them is nepotism but i don't think it's the case of that i think it's just that thing of like like francis ford coppola sees passion in his kids to want to do it and it's like well i will give you all of the resources i can or like you know, anything i can do course to help you achieve your goal i'll, I'll do it like that's it sounds like parenting to me <laughs> yeah yeah exactly give and your kids what you didn't have in a way do you know what no, mean? It's like, support your kids as much as you can you know i, I don't know it, it's not like he's giving her a you know job of a you know it's one thing if you you're you know have an artistic endeavor it's another thing if you're you know getting a job and, and jumping over a bunch of people who deserve the job before you. Do you know what I mean? Like in in a sort of corporate hierarchy kind of way. Oh that, yeah. That if, was like nepotism, but that's, I don't think what he's doing. Yeah. If, if, if Sophia Coppola's films were absolutely dog shit, then like level, level her with nepotism. But like, she's like, I, I, I don't know. She's made some fan, like some fantastic films. Absolutely. In her absolutely. own right. And I don't think it's without that kind of upbringing she had being on, being on set and kind of growing up in this interesting household where they're all like being taken, yeah, being taken wherever Francis was making a film, stuff like that, that, that we would have got this kind of great work. that, that she And did. seeing him, him create one from the heart that this kind of fabulous, fascinating, flawed, mm -hmm. great piece of work. Yeah, you know, yeah. and you know, allowing her, you know, she, she, who knows what she learned, but, but it, it, it seems likely that she learned that, you know, it's okay to create flawed work. Yeah, I, I, will, and you know, and, and if you want to go over the top and make Marie Antoinette, you can, and you can, you can exactly, you can embrace the over the top. You can embrace the kind of exactly sheer femininity that she does in her film in, in a film like that, where it's like. If you want to go bubble gum, go bubble gum. There's no, yeah. there's no shame in it. Um, right, that's right. David, I could talk to you all, all evening about this stuff, but uh, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But um, where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing? I know things are very different from when we last spoke on the podcast. Obviously, things are very different. Let's see. I'm um, the best way to follow me is is on Twitter and Instagram. It's David Mills Department. David Mills D E P T. I have a regular e-newsletter called Quality Time that comes out weekly. That's uh, a lot of fun, so check that out. I'm uh, I have a, a new web series that's come that we're filming in July, so hopefully that will be out in the autumn. That's called Those Two, and I'm doing that with another comic called Holly Byrne, and that's going to be four episodes and a lot of fun. So uh, we'll see. Keep your eye on. Big blockbusters in 2022 because I have a small role in one of them, but I can't tell you which. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much and coming and making some Coppola connections with me. Yeah, it was really great. Thanks so much.
And there you go, guys. That was my conversation with the lovely, 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 lovely David Mills. Um, if you haven't checked out One From The Heart and you've got this far, um, please do check it out. And it's, I know I kind of said in that episode, it's quite a hard one to get hold of, but I think it's a real quirky, that's probably not the right word. I'm, I kind of don't like that word. It's this kind of odd film that I think really needs to be seen by a lot of people. So do, do please do check it out. As for next week on the podcast, I will be, well, no, not even next week, this Friday, you'll be able to hear my conversation with Timon Singh, all about his books, Born to be Bad, part one and part two. And we'll also be talking about all those the times that Nicolas Cage has played a bad guy in films. And next week, proper on the podcast no that one's not proper but it's uh part of the interview strand as it were of the podcast um next week we'll be taking another look at the rocky franchise with my conversation with dom o'brien all about the 1979 sequel to the classic rocky um rocky 2 obviously <laughs> so do be sure to check out that one next week and um, next week sees the release of a new nicholas cage film on the 16th of july which um i'll be able to share a conversation i had with the editor of that film as well as mandy color up space cooties and um the vigil and so much more uh brett buckman um you're really gonna want to listen to that one and um yeah it's uh it's gonna be a good one guys so uh check out that one um if you want to get in touch with the podcast do be sure to hit me up on all the social medias so that is twitter instagram facebook and letterbox all at caged in pod or you can always drop me an email which is caged in pod at gmail dot com and please do get in touch I'm, I'm always about um i love talking to you guys i love kind of having these conversations about films even if we don't even if we don't agree if you think any of the films i talk about are shit and i said oh no i really like that one or vice versa if i kind of slate the film you think it's shit i really want to just get into those conversations with you guys and it really does make my day uh, anytime that somebody interacts like there's so many times recording a podcast you kind of think like Oh, what am I doing? Is anything I'm doing right? But uh, yeah, when people kind of say, hey, I listened or they get involved in any way, like it, it, it really makes me feel like I'm actually doing something worthwhile with my time. Uh, even though I love having the conversations themselves, you know what I mean. If you enjoyed the podcast, if this is your first time, be sure to rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or whichever podcast platform you listen to right now. And if you would like to chuck some money in the bucket, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod. So as always, guys, I've been Petrus Patsilvus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it Coppola and I'll catch you next time.
This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.